Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio. Brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Thank you very much, Rich. And we're delighted to be here today with our guest, Greg Rabel. Greg is the founder and CEO of Factor Trust, the Alternative Credit Bureau. Greg has over 20 years of management, financial services, technology, and credit risk experience, along with extensive experience in electronic payments and big data. And since founding Factor Trust, Greg has overseen rapid growth in the U.S. in pursuit of his vision to build the leading alternative credit reporting agency and analytics business for the underbanked. Prior to this, he founded a leading electronic billing and payments business, later acquired by FIS, and was CEO of an online employee relationship management business serving Fortune 100 customers. He's also recently SVP of Global Services for Premier, and he was named one of the three Southeastern finalists for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2000. Greg, we are really excited to have you here today to talk about Factor Trust, uh, you know, the Alternative Credit Bureau for the Underbanked. How, how did you come up with this idea? I mean, the Alternative Credit Bureau, everybody knows Equifax, you know, Experian, TransUnion. Why didn't you you know, want to work with them and, you know, be part of those big organizations. They've already got giant market share and great track records. What drove you to uh, founding Factor Trust? Uh, I think early on, I mean, when we were looking at the marketplace, we, you always look at potential competitors uh, that are out there and, and sort of see where their strengths and where their weaknesses were. And it was clear to us that the three bureaus were strong in the prime credit space, but, but not very strong in sort of the non-prime area. And so that was one of the key reasons why we felt like there was an opportunity here. Um, we felt there were a lot of lenders in this marketplace. It was growing and uh, nobody was really focused on that area as kind of a core uh, business strategy. So we just felt like for us, it was it was the right thing to do at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And how, how big is the market for the underbanked? It's, I mean, if you look at the overall market, it's a, you know, a lot of numbers have been thrown around, but somewhere between 85 and $100 billion market. So it's a big market. It's, if you look at the consumers in the market, there's roughly 113 million consumers, adults in the U.S. that are below a 700 FICO score. So they would kind of fit in that right. non-prime, near-prime space. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, is that market concentrated or is it fairly fragmented? How- it, it's pretty fragmented. I mean, there's a lot of, from a lender side, it's it's highly fragmented. So I think that's one of the challenges of why the bureaus, the big bureaus, haven't really been able to penetrate it or, mm-hmm. or, or spend a lot of time on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a consumer standpoint, there's consumers really across that whole spectrum from, you know, deep subprime all the way up to near prime. Right, right. And obviously, if you're underbanked, you, you know, you probably don't have a credit card. Or if you do, you know, yeah. your payment history is not very bright. And- yeah, and I think that was one of the things that we saw was that, um, you know, there there are some consumers in this space that do have a credit card, but not not many. Um, the thing is, is if you look at underbanked, it's, it's, you know, consumers that are employed, they have a bank account. Usually it's a form of kind of a simple checking account, um, but they just don't have a lot of traditional credit options. And so we felt like uh, this was a great opportunity, not only to 
serve lenders, but also to provide a way to track the data that the big bureaus hadn't tracked mm-hmm. um, as a way to help consumers. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we definitely saw it as a as a big consumer benefit because it would it you know by having that data and being able to assess risk better, mm-hmm. consumers would have more credit options and be given more opportunities. Right. But if they don't have a lot of credit options, then how do you find the credit risk data on those consumers? It must be difficult. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, it's um, if you look at the marketplace and and everything from short term lenders through auto and credit card and rent to own, um, you just you know there's lots and lots of different lenders out there, different product mm-hmm. types, mm-hmm. and so our goal is always just to keep looking for opportunities where mm-hmm. you know sizable businesses exist and lending to these consumers, um, but maybe either, you know, haven't reported that data to anybody before. Right. Um, and so we just are usually able to, <clears throat> excuse me, um, usually able to walk in and, and help show them that we can help their business by, um, you know, by scoring consumers better, by helping them with managing their defaults and things like that, and, and ultimately winning over the lender to be uh, comfortable sharing their data with us, which is a big part of our, our right. strategy. Right. So how many lenders now do you have in your network for sourcing? Um, close to 200 200, now. okay. Yeah, so okay. quite a few. So I imagine technology is pretty important for you then to try to aggregate all that data. How, what is... The Absolutely. technology strategy behind all this. Yeah. So when we've built the business, I think, you know, and, and, and I'd like to say it was a it was a focused plan, but it really just worked out this way. We, we really started looking at the market. And I think the areas that we saw that were growing, back, this is back in 2006, the areas that were really growing the quickest were the online channel. Okay. Um, and then kind of after that, mobile became a big part of this as well. And it kind of, you know, sort of fits together. And then the storefront or the retail side was a, was a sort of ancillary and, and, and sort of is, I think, starting to see a comeback a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, because we built this to service primarily online lenders, we had to focus heavily on speed and right. the ability to process lots and lots of transactions quickly. Uh-huh. And so by doing that, we were able to build a, you know, kind of a world-class, um, you know, infrastructure to support this. I don't think we do enough or spend enough time to really kind of talk about what we do there uh-huh. because everything is really focused on the data and the scores. Right. But, you know, when we, we process, you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions, you know, a day. Mm-hmm. And in those scenarios, we usually do that in, you know, a second a piece. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a big infrastructure and scales well. And mm-hmm. we've got, you know, a good group of people that do it. So mm-hmm. um, that's a big part of what we do. Okay. And, and what's the technology platform that underpins all this? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a .NET platform, but it's, um, you know, it's built across, you know, somewhere in the range of about 60 different servers running on, okay. you know, uh, redundancy and disaster recovery sort of across two different data centers. And, right. and it's a pretty big operation to, right. to manage, but right. um, it's just something that that's always been a key of, of what we wanted to accomplish as a business is okay. be able to provide a high level of service to clients. Uh-huh. Did you have to raise a lot of capital to develop this uh, infrastructure? You know, we didn't. We we sort of, my background, I, I had a, a, an early business where I raised a lot of capital. Um, Which one was that? Uh, Derivion. Okay. And, and so we raised a lot of capital and it provides you a lot of opportunities, but... Uh, with that capital comes a lot of other, you know, things that you have to deal with, with mm-hmm. investors. And mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and so when we started this and, and something that we wanted to do out of the gate, we just wanted to do something that we could bootstrap mm-hmm. as long as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we needed to raise capital beyond sort of what I could put in or, or you know, my, you know, another gentleman that started with me uh, could put in, then we go out and, and bring that in. So we, in total, probably only raised in the range of about $2 million. Two million, and that was started in two thousand six. Yeah, well, we started. We did it over three rounds, so we did you know four hundred thousand, and then a million, and then okay, and then kind of finished it up with about six hundred towards the end. So okay, um, it just we wanted to get it to profitability as quickly as we could. We wanted right. to we we wanted to have a lot more control mm-hmm. over what we did versus mm-hmm. having you know mm-hmm. large investors that mm-hmm. were kind of you know watching over everything that we did. We honestly that we felt like that was going to be important for us to be able to shift quickly when we needed to. Right. But now you have institutional money, right? Yeah. We, so we brought in a, a new investor uh, about a year ago, um, uh-huh. a couple of different firms that uh-huh. I think looked at the market like we did and saw the opportunity right. that we saw and, and were willing to sort of okay. you know, bet on going after that. And so that's, that's the reason we did that. It was the right time. Okay. It was a good opportunity for our investors that we had from the get-go and okay. then a good one for the new, the new investors. Okay. So you made sure when you were selecting those investors that you were aligned in terms of your strategy and your values and Absolutely. You know, it, it, you're it, laughing. It, yeah, if you're if you're not, it's a it, it's a long road and it's, you know, I Is there it, a story here? No, I mean there's <laughs> a, there, there's a lot of stories. I think you just go through these processes and you sort of been doing it long enough that uh you want to like the people across the table from you and it makes it a lot more enjoyable. And so uh, you know, I just felt like the people that we brought in, I and mean, we, we we didn't have to do it. It was just something that happened, and and we started talking, and it kind of worked itself out. So it almost sort of took a, right. you know, went down a path that we probably weren't expecting to go down. Right. But the people, you know, people were great people. They understood the market. They wanted to do what we wanted to do. So it just made a lot of sense. So uh-huh. that that's why I'm I'm laughing because it's it doesn't always happen that way, and so mm-hmm. um you know it's the best time to to do something like this is when you don't need to do it and just interests aligned. And that's kind of what happened here. So it just evolved. Yep. Into your it just benefit. evolved. And yeah. it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a planned thing. It just sort of worked out. So if I could dig a little deeper here, cause you've sure. got so many good experiences here as an entrepreneur, one with the electronic billing and payments company, mm-hmm. another with the uh, employee relationship company. So you didn't always have these kind of relationships with investors. Uh, you know, I, I've had, I think I've been, I've been blessed to have a lot of good relationships from that standpoint, but you always, when you go through these processes and you just have to, you have to sort of overlay the timeline. So, Derivion was, you know, a great business and it, we started back in 97, 98, um, and sold it in 2001. Um, but if you were, if you were sort of in the, you know, in and around the, the area at that time, you know, the stock market pretty right. much, yeah, right. just fell over in, in spring of 2001. So, you know, when those things happen and everybody gets nervous, mm-hmm. you know, people react different ways. Right. And so, um, we what had business a, was Derivion again? It was electronic bill presentment. Oh, that was payment. the, that so, was yeah, the bill so we so we okay. we worked with billers and helped them to okay. electronify their sort of paper based billing process. Right, and so um, you know it was a great business, great opportunity, but took longer with consumer adoption than I think everybody expected. And and then you sort of overlay the economic situation in the markets. It was you know it was it was a it was a tough road there at the end. So. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, we, we got something done and it made sense for us at that time. It was a, you know, FIS or at the time was Metavante. Yeah, I remember um, them. Good yeah. business. Um, they wanted it to to help with the, the billers that they had in their, right. in their um, uh, services area. And so it made sense for us to do that. But it was, it was one of those, you know, ride the roller coaster kind of period <laughs> for about three years. Sid, you have a few sleepless nights. Oh, a lot, of, a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because of cash flow, or I mean, it just you know, we, the, the, the good, yeah, yeah, the good thing is that in that scenario is it was just grow, grow, grow. Um, yeah. People didn't talk about um, business fundamentals, right? Like EBITDA and things like they do now, and that's one of the things that right. I could compare against this company versus that is that we were. We started in 06 with this company and we were profitable in 09 yeah. and haven't really looked back since and, uh-huh. and uh-huh. have grown and, and done a lot of great things. But we just, in our minds, we, we never wanted to have to deal with that. And so, um, whereas the early, you know, the early side, people were care, they cared about, you know, your revenue because ultimately you wanted to go public and that was right. kind of the, right. so I, I like the term to me, I like this a lot better. I mean, it helps you sleep at night. It helps you. You know, it helps give you a lot more context on where your business really ultimately needs to be. Mm-hmm. But it's wonderful too. You survived 08 pretty well. You said you were profitable in 09. We did. You know, it's it's, it's interesting because year. we we were expecting to see a bigger negative impact on our business because mm-hmm. the prime credit markets did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm going by memory, but I think in the prime credit market there's probably something in the range of maybe 60 to 70% of the credit in the market went away. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sort of expected something similar to, right. to that in the non-prime space and never happened. Uh-huh. And so, um, you know, I mean, some of the- That's like, interesting. Yeah, so, so immune yeah, to some of the economic I, yeah, changes? You know, we watched unemployment and unemployment yeah. was obviously, you know, bad at that Terrible, point. But, yeah. but, you know, that whole, that whole market continued to grow. And, you know, I think we always, we talk about, you know, that those lenders and things, I mean, those lenders continue to lend through that process. They didn't take TARP money. They didn't, you know, these are, these right. are sort of smaller businesses that were able to do that through that process. This is a really good story here because Greg, you know, I remember, we all remember 08 and, mm-hmm. and how bad it was for so many markets and so many industries, but yet it sounds like for Factor Trust, the Alternative Credit Bureau, for the underbanked, mm-hmm. it didn't change all that much. If anything, it was maybe even more of an opportunity. Yeah, I think so. I think it. I think we expected more change and didn't see it, and we kind of always looked over our shoulder, like, "Is there? Right. Are we missing something here?" But right. it. Right. Um, I think we realized that it gave us some confidence that the business, because this is such an untapped market, right? Um, you know, right. it was just a good one for us to be in, especially uh-huh. knowing that we didn't have a lot of capital. Um, we wanted to, we wanted to sort of, you know, be small and nimble and, and able to compete against some of the bigger players. Right. For us, it was a good, it was a good scenario to work in. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, we talk a lot about the road less traveled on Capital Club Radio because mm-hmm. so many successful entrepreneurs find these niches, which right. are frankly less competitive. And that's, it sounds like that's exactly the story of. A factor trust. Although now, I mean, are you seeing the big guys trying to get in your space? Um, I think we do sometimes. I mean, you know, what, to some extent, it's, it's it's more us going into some of those areas. So, non prime auto is a good example where they've used big three bureau data for years. 
Um, but they see a lot of value in our data as well because we have we have information that they don't have. Right. So in those areas, I think we're creating the competition. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in most of the other areas, I think you know we've we we built a good product. We have good data, and because of that, that's that's our competitive advantage. Right. So you know nobody really can touch us from that standpoint. So that's what we continue to focus on. But yeah, it's um you know the business has continued to evolve well and 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 do. Um, and sort of be innovative and do new things that that maybe others can't do yet. And yeah. So that's that's definitely something that we push on hard. Uh huh. Uh huh. You were at uh, you were CEO of the online employee relationship mm-hmm. management business. You were also uh, SVP of global services for Premier. Premier. You weren't founders of those companies, no. obviously. So, no. what are the differences from being a founder and you were a founder for a couple companies now mm-hmm. versus being in someone else's business? Are there you know, common denominators here or differences. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I think you always when you when you found uh, you found a business. I think you you have sort of more of a I don't know emotional connection to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 you know when when you go through challenging times, I think kind of creates a different dynamic than maybe if you're you're just an employee of a company and you're, you know what I mean? Right. You didn't found it. Uh-huh. And so from that standpoint, I, I always sort of feel like when, when you start a business, you can create the culture, you can create the type of environment that you want people to be in. Right. And I think that's important. Um, and when you don't, that's, you know, it's somebody else has created that for you. And I think in that scenario, I think those are the areas that are, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the sort of bigger differences. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally like starting it. I like that early stage process. I right. like the right. kind of evangelizing what you're what yep. you're doing part of this. Um, so that to me is the most interesting part of evolving a business. The evangel, yeah, just talking to people about what you do, how you do it, why, and those types of things, and selling. I mean, I think my my wife always kind of teases me about it, not in a, in a negative way, just. You know, she, I'm a salesperson. That's ultimately, right. I you know, I sell the vision of the company. Right. I sell right. working for the company, the people right. that work. I mean, I you know, right. that's what you do as a as a CEO of a business or a founder of a business. Right. And so, I enjoy that aspect of mm-hmm. it. When you come in and run something that somebody else has started and created that culture. Right. In some cases, there's things that you really need to change, but are hard to change mm-hmm. because they're mm-hmm. years in the making. And mm-hmm. um, and so those are the maybe the areas that you'd like to sort of look right. at differently. But right. yeah, I, I enjoy the the starting of, of the business itself. You've used the word culture several times in our conversation this morning. How important do you think that is to the success or failure of your company? Uh, I think it's critical. I think it's um, I think it's something that people feed off of and people see mm-hmm. and it's hard to you can't measure it you can't do a you know hr survey mm-hmm. and right it, it, it's hard to it's hard to you know gauge sort of where you are with it at times but um i think it's important that people know what you stand for uh-huh. um what they're working for and and especially at early stage companies um you know, people are working long, long hours. They're they're there on weekends at times when when things dictate that, and so I think they have to feel attached to it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it's it's a that's a tough that's a tough ask of a of an employee. Mm-hmm. So, I just think you have to create that culture of transparency. That if there's an issue, that they that they know they can come and talk to somebody about it, right? And those types of things. And I I think you know if I look back. At, at what I've done, I think I 
the culture at this this company is definitely better than the culture at the first company. Because, How so? Because it, it was. I think it was. I think honestly, it was experience. Okay. Um, you know, I was in my Your late experience. So yeah, late twenties, and right. Right. you know, you, you you sort of tend to get pushed to do certain things based on money, based on right. the the you know the board and others that are sort of pushing you down certain paths. Mm-hmm. Whereas once you've got gone through it and you have the experience, um, you know, you know what's right and what you should do and what you shouldn't do, and ultimately it comes down to you. And mm-hmm. and I think that's an important piece of it. Um, you know, we do. We do, you know, monthly talks with our employees where I just get up in the middle of the big sort of room in our office and we throw up our financials up on the board and yep. and we talk about it. Here's where we are. Here's what we're doing. We're ahead. We're behind on certain metrics that we all know what they are. Right. Um, and I think the transparency matters. I think people care about that. They know where they are. They don't feel uncomfortable if they see... Right. Something going on that oh is this bad or you know they they know they're in they're yeah. involved yeah. and so I think that's I think that's key that's something that I've taken into this that maybe I didn't do as good of a job of in mm-hmm. the first company because mm-hmm. a lot of people think the culture is a soft kind of thing mm-hmm. you know and it's big and ambiguous and sort of yeah I, undefined I, but there are hard consequences absolutely no I, stories or yeah or, I mean. I mean, examples. yeah, I mean, I think to me, culture is the best retention tool. I think if you don't, I mean, everybody's out there trying to hire good people. Right. Um, and, you know, you can only pay so much and you can only do so much from an option standpoint and things like that. And and, and everybody wants to be, impo- you know, yep. everybody likes to win. So people like to be on winning teams. Yep. And so um, to me, the culture is what creates that dynamic where you feel like you'll sort of, you know, you'll work as a team and you'll mm-hmm. go above and beyond and, and, and those types of things. So to me, it's, you know, if you don't have that, if your culture's not good or you don't right. value people and, and you know, it's all about two or three people at the top and everybody else is kind of an afterthought. Right. I just, to me, that's just a bad, a bad right. situation waiting to happen. Right, right. And you see the impact on customers too? From your culture? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you create, I mean, we've always created a dynamic of the customer is yeah. is the reason we're here. Right. And so, right. Um, you know, nobody ever says, oh, I don't have time for this. I mean, if there's a problem, everybody jumps on it. Mm-hmm. People, people help out regardless of what role they're in in the company. Mm-hmm because we've set that up as that's that's what we're about you know mm-hmm. we we've been able to get where we are because of that and so right. um i think you have to set that and then you have to continue to reinforce it and obviously there's times when you know if people aren't doing it there's got to be consequences for it yeah but as long as you sort of, as long as people know you know what kind of environment they're in yep. and how to deal within that environment i think that's the most important piece right Let's go back in time. Sure. When you were growing up, did you see any, uh, did you have any dreams about what you wanted to do going forward? Is there any connection between, you know, your education and your aspirations versus, and what you're doing today now, leading Factor Trust? You know, I, you know, I, I kind of, I was thinking, I mean, I, if you look at how I grew up, I mean, I, I grew up in a pretty standard kind of, you know, situation, um, you know, kind of middle class family, um, Parents divorced, uh, and then I live with my mother. And you know, we we probably struggled financially uh-huh. more than maybe others that I was right. around. Uh, but I think for me, um, you know, the college was 
college was definitely something you you, you sort of were, were striving to go to because mm-hmm. most people in my family didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was something I think was important to me, although there were times, I mean, like anything I was, mm-hmm. you know, I have a lot of, it's like anything, you do, you do dumb things when you're growing up and, and, and things like that. But I think as I went forward, it was sports were really important to me. Sports yep. were probably more important to me than school was important to me. Right. Um, and then once I got out of the military, that kind of changed. Then it was like, you know, right. I, right. you got to grow up. You got to, you know. And, and so that's when I really started thinking about the future. I'd, I'd like yep. to say I had a I had a plan back in middle school and high school. Yeah. I had a paper route. Right, and I, right, did, right. I, I didn't. You yeah. know, I was, yeah. I enjoyed, you know. I, I liked all the things that were social and anything, and I liked to play sports. And right. that was that was how I grew up and what I did. And then, you know, you, you sort of go through experiences. And I like to say, you know, the, the military for me, the Army was the best thing I did mm-hmm. because, you know, you, you do certain things that teach you kind of what you want to do. And then sometimes they teach you what you, you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I loved the Army. It was a great thing for me. And I respect, you know, everything about the military. But it also showed me that there's other things that I wanted to do in life, and I didn't want right. to. I didn't want to go through and you know be a you know retired you know military person. I wanted to right. Right. do something else, and so it was it was helpful to steer me at oh. the time I needed to be steered. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it was you know I was and for me it was great. You know I remember I, when I when I joined the army, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my parents. I just did it. Uh, you know, and I just did it, and then I told them afterward, and and wow, were they say, shocked? They they weren't happy. We're not. <laughs> they were not happy. Uh, that was a paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> but it was you yeah. know for me it was yeah. it was good. I think yeah. if you ask them both now, they would say you know, it was the best thing I ever it did. Provided some framework and yeah, discipline. Abso- that, absolutely. That maybe paid dividends later. Yeah, as it CEO, did. It did. Know, I think so. I mean, I think organization. I think so. I think it. It, you know, it, it's a sense of teamwork. It's, you know, I think I, I I don't often, you know, when I start something, I finish it. I don't, you know, that's the type of, that's what you learn. Right. Um, and so I, I definitely think it helped me in a lot of ways. Right, right. What are you reading these days? What, what's on your nightstand? Uh, you know, I, I really, um, at the moment, I'm not, you know, I'm not really reading specifically one book. I kind of yeah. bounce. Right. Uh you know, I'm in an airport and I, I feel like I'm gonna I want to read something instead of you know do something else. Uh, but I, I'm I like history, so yeah. I, I read a lot of yeah. you know kind of historical type thing. We talk about um, different areas. I mean, I read some of the other stuff. There's a there's um, a new book out. Well, it's a movie called War Dogs that I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, just different things like that. I, I, I bounce around. There's not, you know, one specific thing I'm reading at, at, at this point in time. What's uh, the future look like now for Factor Trust? I know, you know, we've heard about the, uh, the underbanked index, which is one of your, mm-hmm. you know, key uh, metrics, I guess, in your dashboard. I was looking at your website, and you've got recently a uh, – you launched a, a, a CRA gateway mm-hmm. for the underbanked community. Yeah. What, what's the future look like for – for Factor Trust and Greg Rabel. Yeah, so we're, I mean, we're growing really rapidly at the moment. And so um, it's good because you have lots and lots of opportunities. It creates a lot of opportunities. Um, we, we've doubled our workforce in the last nine months. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're doing a lot of new things. And so CRA Gateway is, a, is, a, is an area of opportunity that's specific to um, lenders need to be able to report to 
one or more kind of credit bureaus, one of which is us, but also to be able to report their data in other places. And so if you look at you know the what we see as regulation on the on the horizon mm-hmm. it's still maybe 2 years away but mm-hmm. um that's going to be part of what i think the regulators are trying to do is you know we we saw this dynamic over the last 10 years where right. where data wasn't reported to a lot of places because of that right consumers you know maybe were limited in what they could and couldn't do right um i think the regulators are trying to change that so we wanted to get ahead of it okay. and create a, something where a lender can report their data in one format that then could be parsed out to multiple parties. And so okay. it's a it's a huge undertaking for the lender to do it otherwise to send something different to each right. bureau. So we wanted to create something that could do that for them. Okay. Um, so and it's then, a common platform. Yeah, then, it's but, a common platform that okay. lenders can use and, and um, configure accordingly to report to anybody they need to report to. And so that was a big a big push by us as part of the upcoming CFPB rules that we expect to happen. And then um, on the underbanked index, I think there's a, you know, historically and really over the last five years, especially people talk about underbanked, mm-hmm. but they don't, you know, a lot of people don't know exactly what it is. It's hard. It's like a pretty ambiguous term. Right. And so um, we try to create, uh, you know, when we do these indexes, kind of shine the light on some aspect right. of underbanked consumers, whether it's, you know, um, who are there, who are the major employers or, um, you know, how much money do they make or, you know, what, what type of products do they like and those types of things. And so we try to talk about it in a way where people can sort of put a face to, you know, what, what that consumer segment looks like. And so that's a big part of what the underbanked index does for, you know, for us is allows us to Uh an ability to sort of market the fact that these are, you know, these are, consumers out there that are good credit risk and, and in many cases they're good credit risk some cases they're not yeah but in many cases they are and they they don't they don't get credit for that and so mm-hmm. we want to be able to mm-hmm. expose some of that information in a way that helps people understand who they really are wow so that's really another means by which factor trust can differentiate itself mm-hmm. in the market because I don't think there are any other underbanked indexes are there no there's not and I, I think that's a big part of what we're trying to accomplish is that we do have a lot of information that others don't have. Right. And, and because of our experience of doing this, we have, I think, a kind of a unique position to be able to talk about it. And now with this gateway, uh, it sounds like you're trying to capitalize, in fact, on the regulatory challenges of the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's not a threat. Yeah, it's you're, not, you're turning a threat into an opportunity. Yeah, I think, I, I, think, um, I think lenders that look at it in a proactive way and look at it as... Um, the more data that's out there, usually the more data, the better you can assess risk. Right. And so from our standpoint, we want to be able to help. I mean, we've always just tried to help, so, you know, provide solutions to lenders to, to lend money in this space. And so the CRI gateway is a, is a way that that's going to help them comply right. with what we're feeling confident is going to be part of this rule coming right. up. And so um, that's a big part of it. We, we also do, we, we announced another product a couple of months ago called um, Ability to Repay. Mm-hmm. And that's just, again, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to deal with compliance of what the we believe the CFPB is going to come out with right. to address you know residual income of a consumer and can they afford a loan or can they not afford a loan and things like that. So that product that you're going to come out with will help yeah, we, and we, we, we've come out with it. We have some lenders using it already because they're being proactive about it. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's a, it, you know, I think it's, it's, it's looking at the marketplace and providing solutions that help them evolve because 
the regulatory framework has always been there and it is going to continue to sort of be there. Right. And so you need to be able to stay ahead of that. And that's what we're trying to accomplish is provide ways in which we can help lenders do that. So really the, the regulatory environment is not again, necessarily an adverse, uh, factor for you guys. I mean, it's a challenge, but you're right. I think, I think for the lenders in the space, it's, it's a challenge. Right. Um, for us, um, I think it's probably going to mean, you know, a bigger business for us than, than, than anything else, um, in a, in sort of a variety of ways. But one of the things that, you know, we position ourselves to be able to deal with the, you know, the compliance spend that you have to have and the, you know, all the different things that you have to put in place to be able to deal with it. So we're, we're lucky enough to be able to have that, that mm-hmm. ability to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lenders are going to be, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a tough road to sort of, Right. Work through the changes they have to work through and the yep. additional yep. compliance costs and, you know, all the things that they're going to have to, to accomplish in order to comply. Mm-hmm. So I, I think for them, it's a bigger challenge than right. it is going to be for us. I think we'll right. benefit from it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, you know, we support them as just like we support the consumers. So mm-hmm. we, we have to be able to deal with both that's a wonderful us. story because you're, you're helping the lenders bring more capital to the underbanked consumers who mm-hmm. need the capital who can't get it from traditional sources. Right. So you're creating a market yeah. and taking a road less traveled, which yeah. we love to, to, to hear about. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think we're, cre- we're creating a market. I think in a lot of ways we are, the markets, you know, the markets there and the lenders are there. And I think sometimes they get, they, they gets lost in the whole picture here is that, um, you know, lenders have been out there lending to these consumers mm-hmm. where maybe there weren't a lot of good data sets and a lot of good analytics capabilities to score these consumers. Right. But the lenders were doing it. And so they've always been out there. So I think we're really supporting them with better products. Okay. Um, and, and a better means to sort of accomplish what they're doing. Right. And, and just, I think as a, as a, as an offshoot of that, it's helping the consumer because we're tracking data that, that nobody's really bothered to track before. Right. And with that, they get capital. Yep. With that, they have better lives. Yeah, and absolutely. they can rehabilitate themselves. Absolutely. So it's also a service to the society yep. that you're providing and making money for yeah. you know, your shareholders and yourself and your employees. Yep. Great story, Greg. Thank you. Are there anything, any other comments you want to share with our listeners before we wrap it up? Um, I mean, I, I don't think so. I mean, we, we talked, I guess one thing that I will say is that we talked a little bit about the, the, the consumers in this segment. And I think leading to that point about the benefit of the consumers, we're, we're working on, um, you know, we, we call those consumers credit climbers, the, the mm-hmm. sort of the 113 million that are below a 700 FICO. Um, so we're, we're trying to take what we do with the index and mm-hmm. expand it. Right. Into this segment, um, this sort of credit climber segment, and then provide more solutions. So, coming up, we'll, we'll be doing more to help consumers um, educate themselves for right. financial education, as right. well as right. provide you know means for them to expand their data set, yep. so they can get more options beyond what we're doing with the lenders. Okay, and so that's sort of something that we've been working on that I'm excited about because it. It, I think, takes what we've been doing on the underbanked index and, and evangelizing right. these consumers um, to sort of a new level. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. It's outstanding, Greg. you got a great story and a great future, and we look forward to uh, tracking you and your success going forward. And uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you. And uh, that about wraps it up with Greg Rabel. Uh, I'd call him a pioneer in credit risk management, and uh, we're excited to hear you know, where you've come from and where you're going. 
Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.